Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hi, this is Colin McEnroe. So this is a kind of show that we've done periodically. I think we should actually do it more. But this is a kind of unplanned conversation between me and David Edelstein, a film critic whose work I've admired for decades and decades. But he's also my friend. I've known him for decades and decades, too. And anytime we talk, both of those things are happening. I'm talking to a film critic who fascinates me with the kind of perceptions that he has. But I'm also talking to my friend who I need to catch up with. And I think these conversations, for that reason, become a little bit unusual. I'm not saying they're completely unique, but a little bit unusual. A little bit my dinner with Andre, kind of, you know, (laughs) to elevate our status beyond all reasonable expectation. But anyway, that's what's about to happen on the other side of the news. So get ready. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, this is Colin. Welcome to the show. Let me tell you the plan to the extent that we have one. David Edelstein and I have been friends for many, many years, too many years really to count. And we like to talk about movies and other culture. I mean, it's, I think, increasingly the case that you can't segregate movies from the rest of culture, even if you want to. So we're just going to have a conversation here towards the end of 2021. And we don't even necessarily know where this conversation will go. Doesn't that sound promising to you? All right. So David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic, joins us today. We have a full hour with him. Welcome back to The Colin McEnroe Show. I'm honored and humbled to be here. (laughs) Well, so let's begin with something that I know that's on your mind, which is the movie-going experience as we know it. This whole idea that you and a friend or two would go to a big room that's all dark with a big screen and ideally an adequate or really superlative sound system and experience something that you can't experience in any other way. This, you feel, is a kind of wheezing model at this point, but but say more. Well, I I know you're very sensitive to this because you have spoken about living with immunocompromised people, and so you're staying out of theaters altogether. But I think all of us um, have to constantly live with a risk-benefit analysis. I really want to see West Side Story. Do I want to die? 
to see West Side Story? Do I want to kill people I love to see West Side Story? It shouldn't be a factor when you, when you go out for a night's entertainment, worrying about whether or not you're going to die. But the pandemic exacerbated something that was already at work and has been at work for, well, I would say maybe 50 years, but certainly more intensely in the past 10 years. And that is increasingly the death of public culture as we know it. Used to be that, you know, we would, we thought of movies as a, as a private medium because we would sit in the darkness and be left with our own thoughts, even though people were beside us. But then television became even more private and movies somehow became a, a public experience. And, and now with, the, with, with streaming technology, with the explosion of films available to us online, combined with the fewer films available to us in movies, I don't see how there's any economic model forward for the chains, for, for Regal, for AMC. I could name some others, but they've already gone out of business. It's just not, it's not viable anymore. And it's only been with Disney now, everybody wants to be Disney. Every studio wants to emulate Disney. But what, what did Disney do? Disney just basically cut all its so-called mid-list movies, all its movies for grown-ups, and decided to concentrate on what they sometimes call franchises or tent poles or universes. Funny story, back in the early 90s, the critic Elvis Mitchell briefly got a job at Paramount Pictures as, a, as an executive. They learned their lesson to hire Elvis. But he would come back and I met him for drinks and he was just laughing. He, I said, what are you laughing about? He said, do you know what they call Star Trek at Paramount? I said, what? He said, the franchise. And oh, gosh, oh, did we have a laugh because franchise was Burger King. Franchise was mobile stations. Franchise was 7-Elevens. Movies weren't franchises. Nowadays, that's cr serious critics talk about franchises. Nowadays, it's, it's universes. Every year you can, you can come out with a new interconnected Marvel movie or DC or Star Wars or Star Trek. That's all the studios wanna make. That's all they wanna make. And it's no longer even actors who are driving the box office. It's characters. You know, people don't wanna see Tom Hardy in some little movie, but they want to see him as Venom. I don't know if Tom Holland could open a movie, but he certainly will open Spider-Man. So this, this model, no one goes to movies anymore just because, oh, there's something new that's opening on the corner and it sounds interesting and I like this actor, let's see it. It's all 17-year-olds who want to get into mudslinging matches online about the latest Spider-Man or Doctor Strange reboot. Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll be the person who sort of comes up with counter-arguments that I don't necessarily believe. But one counter-argument would be, well, there's actually something a little bit liberating for actors if they get these franchise roles because they're not quite as obsessed with putting food on the table, making ends meet, so they can do these other kinds of projects. Benedict Cumberbatch, as long as he's got Doctor Strange, I mean, Sherlock Holmes, for that matter, can do other stuff that might be worthy, that might can be do, a little bit more... Can do Heart of the Dog. But where is... How many people are going to see Heart of the Dog in theaters? Yeah. Very, very few. 
I mean, it premiered as well on Netflix. And I just don't know anybody who can see it at home and who has a halfway decent sized TV screen, or maybe even not a halfway decent sized TV screen, is going to want to prefer to watch it with a service they've already paid for, rather than go and risk their lives sitting beside people who in, in all likelihood are, are either checking their cell phone every three minutes or talking. I, I mean, I, as, a, as a film critic, as a, as a hardworking film critic, I used to see most of my movies in screening rooms. This year, I've seen most of the movies I've seen in real theaters next to real people. And uh, I'm really sick of real people because, because the young ones don't know how to behave. And the older ones, it's like, what did he say? <laughs> oh, he's, he said, where is she? Where is who? I, I mean, you're, you're, people have no conception anymore of what being out in public is and respecting the people around you. I make the exception of, of Alamo. Hartford doesn't have an Alamo theater yet, but this new breed of theaters that uh, that will serve you food and that will also have advertisements at the beginning about how you'll be thrown out of the theater if you're warned twice not to shut up. But they have waiters coming in and out every two minutes and interrupting the movie. So you still can't concentrate on the screen in the same way. Right. Um, First of all, I would agree with everything that you've just said, although I, I think this is a problem that's existed for a long time. You probably remember, as I do, million years ago, a Mel Brooks short called The Critic, which was this sort of animated thing that ran sometimes before movies, and it was just like this, it was Mel Brooks basically doing what you just did. What the hell is this? Must be a cartoon. Shh. What? What's this? Asha! This is cute. This is cute. This is nice. What the hell is it? Oh, I know what it is. It's garbage. That's what it is. <laughs> and th so that's been going on for a really long time. And it could be argued that if you want to see The Power of the Dog, maybe what you really want to do is, in fact, watch it on Netflix, watch it at home, watch it on a good screen. And one thing that you can do, and David, I know you well enough to know that you'll do it, and I'll do it too, is watch it all over again for whatever you think you might have mixed, missed or watch it as or yeah, try to understand the, what what the hell the ending means yeah. because it, I, I needed to have that explained to me but i was look we've talked about this so much but it's increasingly there was nothing like the first time i went into a, a theater and saw something on a big screen again and actually the images were bigger than i was and more important than that even i didn't have the remote control in my hand bingham ray the late film distributor brilliantly pointed out once when I was on a panel with him that the big difference with television and movies is that you have control on television. You know you can drift off at any second or answer the phone or go to the bathroom and not miss anything. The, the quality of your attention is very, very different. He suggested that if you want to watch something at home and you really want to watch it, that you put the remote in the other room and you close the door, you surround yourself with people who don't want to be interrupted. That changes the nature of, of the experience, but I don't think most people do it that way. I think TV is just another part of your furniture and it's in competition. How can you watch some strange, imagistic, non-narrative film on television and have the same kind of experience that you would in the theater? 
Right. I, I agree there. And there, there certainly are movies where if you don't see them in a theater, and probably a pretty good theater, I'm thinking about two movies that I saw in Trinity Cine Studio in particular, which is where I would go if I really wanted to be enveloped by a movie. Malick's Tree of Life, which I've actually seen in two different movie theaters. I saw it up at that really great one in Great Barrington also. I mean, if you... The Mayway. Yeah, the Mayway. Then I saw it at Trinity. And and I would put Melancholia, for example, in a similar box, where if you're not going to see it that way, you're going to watch it and you're going to wonder why the hell this movie ever got made. <laughs> because, because I mean, you might wonder that anyway. But, you know, because if you don't do it that way, you'll never understand. It's like trying to well, look at a tiny little Kandinsky because or something. That's a, because regardless of what you think of Malick's cosmos, and that could be a long discussion in and of itself, that movie is a hypnotic, enveloping experience. Nature only wants to please itself. Get others to please it too. Loving and faithful service. Likes to lord it over them. Bless these boys. To have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it. And love is smiling through all things. And yes, you can get that if you if you have enough money. Yeah, actually nowadays you can buy a, a 77 or 88 inch screen for you know relatively little compared to what it might have cost you uh, 20 years ago but still it's not going to be anything like it is watching it on a huge screen with your mouth on the floor hearing it from all sides having it completely fill your your peripheral vision you know it's funny i was sometimes in screening rooms i would see the new yorker critic richard brody who's you know <laughs> i like richard but he's He's a nut, but he uh, he always sits in the front row and a little bit off to the side. And it's like, Richard, what the hell are you doing? Oh, you know, I just, he says he wants to get everything else out of his frame of vision so that he can just, his entire field of vision is that screen and he's inside the experience. And uh, I tried it once and it gave me a headache, but now I sit a lot closer than I did before because hell, if you're gonna be, if you're gonna be in a movie theater, then submit to it. Submit yes. yourself to the experience, provided you you trust the director, of course, and you I, can't always trust them. I'm going to just pause here for a second and say, and once again, push back a little bit and say, against the idea that TV is furniture, I think Don Draper's television was furniture, you know? And so he's looking at it in his apartment, and he's realizing that it's a piece of furniture that has pictures and talking on it, and he's going to make all kinds of crappy commercials to go with the kind of, you know, not necessarily really great stuff that's on that TV. I love the fact that, by the way, Aaron Sorkin is now making a movie about the people who are on Don Draper's furniture television. And then what happens is the hardware gets better and better and better, you know, and then people's expectations go higher. I always have this theory that remember when they moved Jay Leno to 10 o'clock? 
and they were giving him this 10 to, exactly, 10 to 11 yeah. thing. And it was terrible because yeah. Leno's whole idea was that you put stuff on at 1130 where people aren't paying too much attention. They're probably watching it on their crappier TV, the one they've got up in their bedroom as opposed to the one they paid a lot of money for that has the highest possible resolution downstairs. And if you're sitting there holding up pieces of cardboard with labels pasted to the back of them and trying to make some lame joke about it, I mean, they're thinking, well, no, I paid a lot of money for this TV set. I want something that looks a lot better and seems a lot better. And I you think- want an Ed Sullivan show. You want something that's like an event TV. You right. Don't want, you don't want those stupid cards. You know, if, if we get VR sets soon, as I think we will, as people like Bill Gates have been lately predicting, pretty soon we'll just wear headsets to watch all our movies and, and we'll we will have that kind of enveloping experience. And then the culture will have, have gone even one step further into privacy, in, into our very heads. Right. Well, on that uh, uplifting note, we're going to take a quick break. David Edelstein and I are having a conversation, which we like to do, and we'll do it some more on the other side of this. back by we i mean me and david edelstein my longtime friend and america's greatest living film critic and we're talking about movies so we we talked about the experience about the venues about the hardware now it's time to talk about the software content content content, content. yeah boy i hate that word um so i mean one thing that we kind of acknowledged in the preceding segment is that content is blurring at least in terms of the presentation so you know i mean succession is implicitly somewhat cinematic you know even though it's completely developed for television i'm sure we can think of some things that are developed for movies that you know seem more like they could be on television it's getting into well, be- mentioned aaron sorkin yeah <laughs> succession, I, let's let's be clear i mean Succession is TV. Yeah. I mean, it has a lot of cinematic properties. Breaking Bad had a lot of cinematic properties. The Sopranos had a lot of cinematic properties, but they are TV. They are narrative driven. They are story driven. They are not image for the most part, imagistic and free flowing in a way that they're not taking for granted that the audience is glued to the screen in a way they would with bodies and a seats in a theater. So it's still the language and there's far more compression in movies, narrative compression as well, because they have to, they have a very limited amount of time. So the vocabulary is still a little different, even though our, our means of accessing the content, God, it sounds, this sounds very postmodern, but I, I just mean that there are still vast differences between cinema and TV, but they are melting away. They are dissolving. Yeah. And I would even say, I mean, not to harp on succession, which I actually, I had some problems with the first half of the season of succession, but then they kind of opened it up. Forgive me, almost cinematically at the end there where they're just like really playing with the Tuscan countryside. I guess that's Montalcino. I don't know where they are, but I mean, you know, I don't know. It's not, uh, pick your favorite Tuscan movie. Like, you know, I mean, there's somebody behind succession who's saying at this point, well, we could really make this look good. And on somebody's 70-inch TV, we can make it really look good. And we can use visual images 
and set them hard up against the verbal and characterological realities of our plot and get something out of it. Colin, succession always, though, settings are more important with succession because our mouths are always supposed to drop by the the level of the furnishings and the the mansions and the grounds. I mean, that's the kind of uh, tension between that and the kind of idiot petty characters is one of the great joys of, of a show that frankly is was my favorite thing this year. I can't think of a, an experience I had at the movies that was richer than certainly the last two episodes this year of Succession, every scene of which the stakes were ratcheted up so high. It really was like watching a great movie, the last two hours of Succession. And if people haven't seen it or even had problems with some of the uh, crudeness of the first season, it's all worth it for these last two episodes. And when you when you see actors like this, when they connect with a role, oh, there's nothing more profoundly satisfying than seeing uh, a Sarah Snook or a uh, Jeremy Strong or, or Brian Cox or, or I could name six more connecting with one of these roles, living inside it. And you just fall in love, no matter how hateful the character, you're seeing some an actor, a performer, an artist engaged on every level. Yeah, I mean, this is maybe a good time for, to make a little transition to something that I, I let you know that I was interested in talking about. Because Succession is maybe the ultimate example of this. And, and that is what I see as kind of a monocultural tone creeping into so much of what I watch. And that is kind of the serial comic mode. The mode that is neither fish nor fowl, doesn't go all in as a comedy, doesn't go all in as a drama. When it's being dramatic, it is ready to wink at the audience. I mean, this is so profoundly true of Succession that it's kind of in recent interviews, it kind of came out that the actors don't even really have any consensus about what they're doing. Jeremy Strong, I think, is kind of surprised to hear that Succession's really funny. <laughs> it hadn't even occurred to him that that might well, be the and case. Thank, thank God, because if Kendall had any awareness, if he was in on the joke, then Kendall wouldn't be Kendall. Kendall wouldn't be suffering, dissolving in front of your eyes on screen. But I, I, I want to give you an ex- I want to give an example from the final episode. This is not a I don't think this is a spoiler. So earlier, you know, seasons ago, there was an incident where this character, one of one of these two brothers, was involved in the dr- sort of a chappaquiddick like drowning of a waiter at another sibling's wedding. Nobody has really known about this except that particular brother and his father, his horrible patriarchal King Lear like father. But it kind of comes out in the final episode. He kind of shares it with the two of his siblings, and he's a wreck and he's sobbing and he's completely unglued, and they just start joking with him. Who hasn't clipped the odd kid with a portion? All right. <laughs> I mean, it's like a rite of passage. I've killed a kid, too. Big deal. Shiv, you've killed a kid, right? Uh, yeah. Man, you f***ed my wedding in so many ways. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, one waiter down, that makes sense. It took me forever to get a drink at her wedding. Please, man. Okay, I, yeah. I can't hear you. You're right. No, I guess I'm just trying to say, like, who's the real victim here? I waited three quarters of an hour for a gin and tonic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was having a hard time 
evaluating what that was. Was it them trying to break the tension and sort of cheer their brother up about the fact that he was involved in the death of a waiter? Maybe something you shouldn't be cheered up about. Was well, it? Colin, yeah. I, I thought that was genius, and yeah. I, I, <clears throat> I would disagree because I think that was the, the character is Roman, who is yeah. a one-liner machine, is a joke machine. First of all, he has a, a very pragmatic task, which is picking his brother up because they are about to go into a battle royale. And the second thing is he's actually trying to reach out to his brother and engage with him on the only level that he knows how to talk to people other than sending them pictures of his penis. He actually is trying to make him smile, make him laugh. To, he's, he's a shallow guy. And I didn't think that was about the screenwriter and the director trying to lighten the mood. That was about Roman. That was about a character using humor in a way that that you just don't see characters using humor in in most things on television. Yeah, although and, although it's actually, you know, we should say that also the, the sister, Shiv, says, boy, you really screwed up my wedding in, in a couple of different ways. And it's almost as though the characters are also making fun of who they are. I mean, either they are so narcissistic that they really do at some level feel this way and are making a joke about something that they can see in themselves. And to me, watching all this, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed it just fine. And I thought it was really great writing and, and I was open to the interpretations that you're suggesting. But it's not something that you would necessarily see in a drama. And I just feel like it's symptomatic of so many things. I feel like every week on the nose, practically, I say, well, it's serial comic. It's not really... It's not really a comedy. Well, first of all, I think I kind of think it's that's a good thing. I think that the blurring of lines in, you know, I think it's all often been true in literature, but the blurring of lines now in, in television, especially, and movies to a degree, is very exciting. Back when I remember Mel Brooks uh, or David Cronenberg mentioning that back when in the 80s, <laughs> when movies were at their lowest. It was either Mel were, Brooks or David Cronenberg? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know well, I, I get them confused. Exactly. They They're did, so they similar. Yeah. Well, they did collaborate on the fly. <laughs> okay, okay. There you go. Bell Brooks produced and hired David Cronenberg to do the fly. And they were shopping it around to studios. And there was actually a studio head who said, I just don't think audiences are going to accept the hero and the villain being the same person. <laughs> And, you know, they just looked at each other. Well, there goes Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There goes, there goes Raskolnikov. There was King Lear. There goes almost every interesting protagonist in the last 400, if not 2,000 years. That has changed dramatically. It changed, you know, maybe the day it changed for television was the day that Tony Soprano shot to death a guy who shortly before that hugged his daughter. And you didn't expect a protagonist to behave that way, television changed. And I think it changed for the better. Now, if you're talking about the wisecracking superheroes or the, the action stars who in the middle of mowing down a hundred people will trade quips, that is new. I mean, it probably dates to uh, maybe Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Maybe there's a way to make a profit in this. Bet on Logan. I would, but who'd better than you? Sundance! When we're done, if he's dead, you're welcome to stay. <clears throat> Listen, I don't mean to be a sore loser, but uh, when it's done, if I'm dead, kill him. Love to. No, no, not yet. Not until me and Harvey get the rules straightened out. Rules? In a knife fight? No rules! What? 
Well, if there ain't gonna be any rules, let's get the fight started. Someone count one, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. William Goldman introduced this kind of facetious, you might even say campy mixture of tones in what would have previously been straight genre pieces. And that's become such a tick right now that I, I dread going to see most animated films. Pixar has mostly steered clear of it because films like Inside Out really do have this, this pure emotional core. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of the other ones are just, just stop joking. Stop giving each other high fives when you blow away the villain. This takes me out of the reality in a way that you said you were taken out of the reality in succession. To me, that's more of what's going on in, in movies these days. And that's just insecurity. Right. I would say that, that just, by the way, the phenomenon you're talking about in terms of superheroes dates back to the source material. I mean, in the 1960s, DC Comics were just dead serious about everything. There's nothing funny about Batman or Superman or the Green Arrow or Aquaman or Wonder Woman. They're just not. They weren't funny. You know, they were here to, to right wrongs. And that's about it. And then Marvel came along and that was Marvel's vibe immediately from the very beginning. Those Stan Lee and, and Steve Ditko Spider-Man comic books. He was like, really he was really funny. But Spider-Man Spider was, when, when Marvel first started out as a, as a film entity, when it got serious, Spider-Man was their, was their marquee character. Spider-Man Spider was the key to their style. Yes, the wisecracker, the guy who stood outside the story. Sure, I, I agree with that. But now everybody stands outside the right. story. Right. I think the profound thing, we have to go to another break here pretty soon. That to me, the more profound thing that happened in both The Sopranos and Spider-Man in the comic books. Because I remember being a kid and reading my first three or four Spider-Man comic books, and I, I kind of had been, you know, born and bred on, on Batman and stuff like that. There's one point early on where Spider-Man swings through the window of a psychiatrist's office and immobilizes him in his chair with webbing and then just sort of wants therapy. He wants to know why he's doing this. People don't even like him, and the newspaper attacks him all the time. And Why would he be doing something like this? You know, and the, of course, the poor psychiatrist is terrified of him, and I don't really know what he says. But, you know, I mean, to me, one of the revolutionary and maybe slightly postmodern techniques that we see in both there and the is the idea of somebody going and getting help. You know, I mean, when we first meet Tony Soprano, what's he doing? He's going and getting help because he knows the life that he's leading right now is not psychologically sustainable. He wouldn't put it that way. But to me, that's like a real interesting modern thing you know, that you wouldn't have seen in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. So it's the Hamletization of uh, yeah. pop culture. And uh, which, is, as you suggest, goes hand in hand with therapy, with psychotherapy. Well, maybe that's a bad thing in some cases, but in other cases, it's opened up whole new worlds for us. All right. So uh, we'll take a break right now. We'll come back with more of David Edelstein. We are back. Before I resume my conversation with David Edelstein, let me thank various people. Dylan Reyes and Kat Pastor are our technical producers today. Jonathan McPants is going to be the producer of this. 
and it's going to take a lot of work. Not because we haven't been scintillating, because we absolutely have, but he's going to have to add a lot of clips and music and stuff like that. It's going to, but the thing you're hearing is going to be great. So, uh, David Edelstein, Owen, is, let hmm. me interrupt you. Yes. And let me let me ask you a question. Okay. What was your favorite movie this year? I know you haven't been to the theater, right? But uh, you haven't, right? Right. So, what what was your favorite cinematic experience this year? So I can tell you whether I I can make fun of you or heartily agree with you. Uh, well, you're gonna, you're not going to do the latter. I, at the moment, my answer is, and it could be you know, sort of a, just a, a recency bias. I really was struck by the movie Pig, which I, I saw quite recently. This is a Nicolas Cage vehicle. I'm not a particularly, I'm, I'm not a big Nicolas Cage fan. It's about a chef who has come apart, kind of come and glue. He's living in the woods and people come and steal the pig that he is at least nominally using to find truffles. But then it kind of turns into this just exploration of food culture, and it all takes place in Portland. There's this incredible scene where he kind of gently rebukes this young chef who's fallen into all that kind of gastrochemistry stuff. What is the concept here? Um, well, uh, we're interested in taking local ingredients uh, native to this region and, and just deconstructing them, you know, making the, the familiar feel foreign, thereby giving us uh, an even greater appreciation of food as a whole. This is the kind of cooking you like? It's cutting edge. It's very exciting. Exciting. I mean, everybody loves it. You like cooking it? Absolutely. Derek. And it, it is sort of about recovering your soul and figuring out where your soul is located. And there's something also intrinsically, to my way of thinking, Buddhist about the level of acceptance and the process that Cage's character uses on his quest. I don't know. I'm looking. I'm sort of looking for answers right now. I'm looking for answers after an incredibly troubling two years. And I thought there were more answers or more interesting spiritual vectors in, in Pig than I've seen in a lot of movies. But go ahead. That was a that Question. was a film that was far uh, about a someone who was so far removed from civilization that I think he resonated with a lot of people at this particular time it was also an extraordinarily beautiful movie it's a it should be seen on the widest screen mm. if your tv screen you know the biggest and widest screen because uh the the space around him the space that's created in the film is very very important i felt it was a little predictable i i found the dramatic beats there were no there were no surprises for me in anything that happened in the film but unlike you, I admire a lot of what Nicolas Cage does. I admire that he, uh, his fourth wife is 27 years old and he <laughs> proposed to her via FedEx because she lived in Japan. I, you know, there's, there's a lot about the guy's flakiness that I find very entertaining and it was a really good part for him. I believed he would sit and think about truffles and sauces and for a long, long time and, and probably Cage did. But it didn't, it didn't surprise me in the way that I think it surprised you. And maybe that's just the, I've seen too many movies. Well, I've I, seen I, too many films with that same spiritual journey. So I'll do a, a call back here. And then I'm going to ask you the same question you asked me. But, you know, to me, I don't know if you remember the year of living dangerously, that character Billy, who's played by Linda Hunt, you know, who's constantly quoting Tolstoy, how then shall we live? 
And to me, Pig does that. It sort of says, how then shall we live? What's good? Where is our soul located? What, what are good activities for us? What are good ways to solve problems? What are bad ways to solve problems? What are ways in which our attachment to certain things create loneliness for us? To me, those are like major questions. I saw them dealt with in Pig more than I typically see them in movies. Like, <laughs> you know, Colin, I, I was asked by uh, one of the CBS morning shows a couple of weeks ago to rewatch on camera It's a Wonderful Life for its 75th anniversary. And in doing some research, I found a number of books with 25 or 75 or 100 life lessons to be learned from It's a Wonderful Life, little sermonettes pegged to each particular scene. And I believe that you could write that book about pig, and it would probably be a lot more interesting than what I read about its wonderful life. Although certainly those those sermonettes are very much in the movie. By the way, that's another one of these movies that's going to be shown in theaters, you know, coming up in the holiday season. And I can't imagine why anybody would 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 risk sitting in a theater to see it's a wonderful life. But you know, more power to you if you do. Particularly the theater in Potterville where they never do any deep cleaning. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, you know the theater in Potterville. Wait a minute, the theater in Potterville <laughs> would have been so great if George Bailey hadn't lived. It had it would have had dancing girls. It would have had a little bit of raunch and fun. You see that movie and you realize that Frank Capra was such a prig. You know his idea of hell was you know was, was actually a main street of of, of, of Potterville where people were uh, not better. Bedford Falls, but Potterville, where people looked like they were having a good time. Right. So I have to ask you the same question uh, you, that you asked me. What was the, what's the standout movie for you? I'm not asking you the best movie you saw. I'm asking you the same question you asked me. What's your favorite movie you saw? Well, I saw I saw two. One about it nine months ago, and one about the day before yesterday. The one I saw um, earlier in the year is Annette, the Leos Carax film, which is a musical music by the Sparks Brothers, Adam Driver as a stand-up comic, Marion Cotillard as an opera singer, and a, a marionette playing their, their daughter, and then a real girl playing their daughter, Annette. And Leos Carax is, is a guy I remember very clearly. I, I panned his first movie in The Village Voice back in the day, and I understand that was that and the New York Times pan discouraged distributors from picking it up. I've always felt rather guilty about that. I thought Leos Carax was a real poser. And uh, I still think he's a poser. <laughs> but I also think, you know, a poser can be genuine. A poser can be striking, melodramatic, operatic, you know, cinematic poses, because their heart is just so huge, that it's the only way they can, they can somehow contain their feelings. I thought it was a stunningly beautiful mind-expanding way of, of dealing with emotions that, that this guy just could not express in any realistic form. I think that the poses, the, the stylization of the movie heightened really authentic emotions of loss and loneliness and jealousy. And there was something early on in the movie. Let me just give you an example. There is a, a stand-up act earlier in the movie that Adam Driver's character does. He's a sort of typically pugilistic comedian. Well, of course, I've heard the rumors too. They say my show kills. <laughs> but relax, see my contract? Save your breath. Says so here. 
Mr. Henry McHenry is not allowed to make the public laugh to death. He comes out in a boxing robe and he almost literally boxes with the audience and anybody watching it and trying to make literal sense of it is going to say, what the hell is he doing? What the hell is this even about? Yet it's, 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 it's pure metaphor. Leo's character is, is, has made a film that's, that is pure metaphor. And I know I sound like the most insufferable pointy head here. It sounds like I'm getting so abstract, but to watch something and to know you're, what you're seeing isn't literal, but, but that it works on every other possible level it, it could possibly work without being literal is something that only movies can do and teaches you to make imaginative leaps without which I think we would be much, much coarser and duller and more linear and a lot of the stuff we are. All right, so that means that I'm going to have to watch Annette. I'm probably going to have to go back and watch Holy Motors, too. And well, Holy Motors is good. Right. Um, the the other one I saw is uh, Sean Baker's new film, Red Rocket. Sean Baker did my favorite film of its year, The Florida Project, as well as Tangerine. And this is another look at what I would stereotypically call the underbelly of society, a um, former adult porn star who returns to his hometown, his small town in Texas, to, uh, well, it's unclear what he wants to do except wreak havoc. It's a film that will push every, every culturally taboo button that maybe can be pushed, and yet is just so exhilarating, is so free from self-consciousness and from, and from fear. Sean Baker is, you know, this character is absolutely hateful and absolutely charming and transporting at the same time. And you, you don't have to reconcile those two things. Hey, if we could reconcile our feelings, we wouldn't need drama. We wouldn't need two opposing points of view carrying on at the same time. The fact that you could have that in a single character, you could be so divided about characters. I think that's a glorious thing. And I recommend the film very, very highly. It, it is just opened in New York. I don't know if it's open in a lot of other places. I have a list of movies that I that I have seen and I've loved. I mean, if you haven't seen Velvet Underground and Summer of Soul, two documentaries, very different documentary, rock documentaries, one of which I believe is on Apple TV, one of which is on Hulu, you know, subscribe and subscribe. <laughs> it's easy for me to say. Well, actually, eight, since yeah. you're going there, I'd like to hear your thoughts because I, I, this is the most troubling thing to me is in terms of movies that have sparked, if you call it a movie, whatever is that have sparked conversation, another music documentary, Get Back, all seven hours and 48 minutes of it. I, I know I just have run into more people who want to talk about that than I have about maybe Succession would be the other one. But, you know, people saw that and they really want to talk about it, which is amazing to me on a whole bunch of different levels. But I, I don't know that I necessarily know your take. I've seen you on social media talk about it a little bit. Well, I, I absolutely adored it because my favorite fantasy movie genre is time travel. Mm -hmm. And uh, I felt like Peter Jackson gave me the best kind of Altman movie, seven hour Altman movie of the Beatles sitting around dealing with all the crap that they, they were dealing with right before your very eyes. I felt very, very privileged 
I felt thrilled and grateful for the experience. Parts of it were boring, parts of it were riveting. How wonderful to be in that space at that time with those people. I mean, how, how could you, how, how could anybody sort of shrug off that gift? I don't, I don't know. I, well, I can shrug. I mean, look, I, I'm just amazed. I thought editing was a thing, you know? <laughs> I oh, thought editing. the 60 hour view. Yeah, I thought editing was a thing that filmmakers did. I mean, I, I got a lot out of Get Back, but I could totally have done that in a three hour movie. There just isn't any rationale except for this that argument that the only way that you can experience the incredible ennui and tedium of being in a recording studio that you're not really paying for by the hour is to watch it unfold before you which well, I don't you weren't know. paying it by for the hour and so you have to ask yourself what I ask myself every day which is how valuable is my time well not very right no um, I, I mean that the Beatles most most people who go into recording studios they're yeah. in a little bit more of a rush recording studios are like casinos I mean they are designed to make you f lose track of time but most people are paying a lot of money to be in the recording studio. If you go into the Apple recording studio that you own and you're the Beatles anyway, so you have a lot of money, you can afford to waste a lot of time. That was the only point I was making. Okay. Well, I, I agree with you. Other films, Last Night in Soho, three quarters of which is the most brilliant psychological thriller I've seen in years. The last quarter of which is just terrible. I mean, is is sub- sub sub giallo schlock i have rarely seen a drop off like that but i still recommend the movie the last duel which i think you've just seen yes. as well it's is a is a fascinating rashomon violent ugly feminist movie with really startling performances by the four lead actors jody comer matt damon adam driver yet again yep. and ben affleck god help us i know he is stubborn Yes. Stubborn, difficult, jealous, rash, yes. dim-witted, irascible. Yes, yes, I know, my lord. Stupid. Does not exactly yield his rent sometimes. But I count him as a friend. <sighs> he disobeyed me and let Limoges fall. He believed he would succeed. His intentions were good. He's no fun. You mean you'd like to see more of his gloom here in Ireland? He postures and lumps about like a black cloud. My lord. I have fought with him and seen the worst of this world with him. He is loyal. Yeah, so are my hounds. Really an interesting movie that bombed and Ridley Scott blamed it on, the director blamed it on millennials of all things. And really the, the people are blaming millennials for West Side Story or, or uh, there's a pandemic on. Right. I people think it also bombed though, not, not to make everything about my thesis, but I think it also bombed because it's a, really a very serious movie. I mean, Affleck is just on the edge of winking through his through the role that he's playing, but everybody else in the movie itself is deadly serious, as it kind of has to be about the subject matter. This is underneath all the duel. This is a Rashomon movie about rape, but I think people, I think their antennae are not well tuned to something. I mean, I, I think it's a reason people had one of many reasons people had trouble with Villeneuve's Dune because there just isn't a laugh anywhere in it. Yes, Colin. So you're making a case now that, that it, movies that don't have this uh, serio-comic tone have a tougher time. And I would argue that the serio-comic tone is just is a kind of drug. It's a kind of it gives us our little jolts, our little laughs. It suggests that the filmmakers have one eye on the audience and our reactions at all times and audiences 
seem modern audiences seem to need that. They seem to need to be poked and prodded and jolted every second. They can't just relax into the milieu of a film. I mean, I didn't think Dune was was any great shakes, but you know, at least you were expected to surrender to this great experience of the film without constantly getting winked at and getting nudged. That was refreshing to me, even if the movie was sort of boring. All right, we're going to have to surrender there. But that was a really good place to stop, actually. As usual, a joy to talk to my friend David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic. Hope you enjoyed it. Go see a movie, either in your house or if you're feeling frisky, get an N95 on and go to the movie theaters. Knock yourself out. (laughs) But be careful. All right, bye-bye. Hi. Good. That was great. Um, I didn't. I didn't. We didn't talk about licorice pizza. Don't look up. Uh, you want to do a whole other show? Passing, we, how about if we I, let's I, wait a month and I'll see all that stuff and we'll do another show? Because I okay. I love this. I think this is like the most fun show for me. Even though I wasn't really, really prepared to do it. Yeah. Well, it sounded like you were. These were pretty good topics. I have so much to say about passing and about. Um, oh yeah, I want to uh, see that. Yeah. I'm your man is a really good one. Really interesting one. Don't look up is is not good but it's it's a real satire i mean it's a real barbed satire of 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 what's happened during the pandemic and and global warming and and our inability to deny reality i mean it's really and the idea that leo dicaprio and jennifer lawrence would do it i mean on december 25th that goes on tv don't Mm. look up i I really want to see it anyway you know i'm back and be back in the back teaching and i've kind of expanded my idea what i'm interested in so, I mean, I, I think that might be a, a part of the...